Welcome to the Explore Worlds Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, broadcaster and writer Anita Rani shares details about her debut novel, Baby Does a Runner, which follows the story of a woman who seemingly has everything until a chance discovery of love letters between her grandfather and another woman takes her on a journey of self-discovery. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, Anita Rani shares her experiences as a writer, her love for Bradford, and the inspiration behind her debut novel. Hi, everyone. Hello everyone and welcome to today's In Conversation with Anita Rani. I'm journalist Ramona Ali and I'm trying not to lose my uh, sitting next to a broadcasting icon because Anita Rani is a Bradford-born badass. She <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you. you are. Well, you are. You really are an inspiration. Um, you know, you're a well-loved TV and radio personality, best known for hosting BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour and television shows like Country File, which my mum loves absolutely, you know, with obsession, and The One Show. Um, Anita is truly, madly, deeply a Yorkshire lass. She's born, raised, and butted in key, I think, <laughs> in Bradford. And she was unveiled as the new University of Bradford Chancellor, which is so cool, earlier this year. Thank you. And Anita is also, of course, a best-selling author of her heartwarming memoir, The Right Sort of Girl. And her debut novel is out, out now, out soon, in fact, on the 20th of July, but you can get some, some books after this session, Baby Does a Runner, which follows the story of a, a woman who discovers love letters to her grandfather, but from another woman. And that leads her on a journey of self-discovery as she goes to visit her motherland in India. Now, I don't know if, Anita, you need a Bradford uh, welcome in your own home city, but please give a lot of Bradford love to Anita Rani. Thank you. How nice to see you all. That's a Bradford welcome. <laughs> yeah. Best in Bradford. Right, so I really, I really enjoyed reading uh, Baby Does a Runner. Phew. Yeah, I, honestly, I did. <laughs> it's, really, it's really energetic, and it was fast-paced, and it was thought-provoking, and oh, it made me laugh. It made me angry. Mm. It made me cry. I mean, especially at the end, I'm not going to do a spoiler, but no. I, was, I, was, I, was, I was lots of snotty tissues. Um, and I was like, lots of times, like, yes, yes, this, this, you know, but especially as a British a Indian. Um, the curry pot, uh, the curry and the yogurt pot alone, I mean, that is like, it was like the book anthem to my life. That's yes. what I felt like yes. reading that. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, how important and how urgent was it to write this story as a British Asian woman? Yeah, very. Um, well, it's the only story I had <laughs> to write about at the moment. Um, by the way, thank you everybody for coming along to, to this. It's really lovely to see everybody. Um, so after the memoir, which uh, people seem to really respond to, um, particularly as I got so many um, people saying that they'd ever, never really read this story before, um, particularly South Asian women, and it was as though I, we have all been carrying this big secret and nobody 
had been brave enough. I was going to say have the balls enough, but so it doesn't feel right to say that. Uh, I said it anyway. Um, to, to say it out loud. And then it just felt like the natural progression when I was given the incredible opportunity to write a novel that this is the story I wanted to tell. And that is of a... Funnily enough, you're not going to believe this, she's a Punjabi girl from Bradford. <laughs> she's 36. She's unmarried. She lives in Manchester. She's gone to the bright lights in the big city. And, um, and yeah, and she, it's about um, figuring out who she is. She sort of hit a, a crisis, an identity crisis, and she thought she knew so much about life and who she was until she hit this, this age where she finds herself a, a bit of a crossroads and a bit lost. And, um, and then she goes off. I mean, we all know what happens when Julia Roberts goes to India and has her eat, pray, love. But what happens when a British Indian woman who has only been to India once as a two-year-old sets foot in that country as someone from Yorkshire? What happens to her? And that's what we discover. And there's just so many different layers that about what it means to be a, a woman, what it means to be northern, what it means to be brown, all those things, all those topics that I love to talk about. <laughs> uh, um, and baby, of course, she she had to be from Yorkshire. Had to be. Had to be from Yorkshire. I mean, as well as so few um, South Asian women uh, female characters in literature, there aren't that. I mean, there aren't that many books set in the north either. And this landscape, this beautiful uh, city and the surrounding areas and the Pennines, it's, it's just in me. It's every, every ounce of me. You know, the minute you arrive, in fact, just now I got off the train at Leeds and got a cab to Bradford and I'm just, the minute I entered Bradford and came down Leeds Road, I was just, you know, glued to the window looking at, it's the architecture, it's, it's the people, it's, it's all of it. It's, it's coming down into the sort of basin of Bradford and looking out across to the other side. It's all of it, you know, and I had to somehow express that in the book. And I love how you say in your memoir as well that like cut me and I bleed Yorkshire. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I thought you that know. was brilliant because it's just so entwined to your identity and and to babies as well. And and I'll come on to something later with what she feels when she goes to India and and her father. But you know, for now, I'm just like looking at like the the insights in the book are just so spot on as well. They're very Yorkshire. They're very. Asian <laughs> about like the boys and their cars and stuff like that you know that guy who has his Subaru and he's like he got it on his PC world wage I mean because <laughs> he's still living at home with his parents but of it's course. but it's also endearing as well it's not like a p-take it's like no it's also, yeah. yeah I mean really yeah endearing. people often have people make real judgments about Bradford as someone, okay, don't judge me. Listen, I went down there to do missionary work and it's going very well, but I've lived in London for 20 years and uh, it is a great city and I love it. But, um, but people, everyone has an opinion about Bradford. Everyone has a, an opinion about the people who live here and the communities and yet most of them have never even set foot in the place. And so I guess, yeah, you know, I do, there is a family who, I mean, uh, my character, Baby, lives in suburban Bradford. She lives in a, she grew up in a cul-de-sac. And, uh, yeah, there's Asian families that live there. You know, the Asian families that once lived in inner city Bradford that have done well and they move out to the, to the suburbs and to the white suburbs, which is what happened to my family. And, um, and there are other Asian families that live there and they've, 
They've concreted over their gardens. All right, there's a few stereotypes, but they're, but they're rooted in truth. And uh, there's a lot of cars parked up. And there is, yeah, the, the, the uh, Khan family's son who's living at home. And he's bought himself a, a Subaru Impreza that he's had wrapped in Kermit Green. Because, because that's his joy. Because yeah. that, and he doesn't have to pay rent and he doesn't have a mortgage. So he it's spends his money on his car. And that's why young men in Bradford, you know, it's a, and it's a form of expressing who you are. It's a form of identity. And if you're into cars, then why the hell not? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I love that because it's just, it's just, there's so much truth in it. That's what I loved about it. Yeah. You know, it really resonates so much. Yeah. And it's really rare to have that as well in, in the world of literature as well as, as the world of nonfiction. Yeah, and I think people might make a judgment about a lad, an Asian lad in Bradford driving a fast car and, make, and just think, oh, well, how has he made the money? It's because he's just saved his wages <laughs> and he lives at home with his mum. <laughs> now, you said that with your memoir, you wrote it to your 16-year-old self. Mm. Who have you written this book for? Um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote my memoir to my 16-year-old self and that was a device to keep me on track from bullshitting because you can't bullshit your 16-year-old self because she's living it and breathing it. Um, I guess this is for anybody, anybody really, anybody who's interested in... Well, I'm trying to understand what it might mean to be baby. I was going to say a South a Punjabi girl in Bradford, but you know she's she's she could be anybody. Um, so anyone who I wrote it, I mean, hopefully it's just a nice summer read with a bit of a romance that people will enjoy with an extra layer. And it's deeper. It's a lot yeah, deeper yeah, than it's that. It's a lot deeper that's with an extra layer. That is what is so wonderful about it. Yeah, and I think that's because I'm trying to express that when you are born here from a migrant culture, there is a deeper layer. There's so much more going on. Always. 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 And so you meet baby in the workspace at first. You see her in her various um, identities and the various worlds in which she moves in. So you see her at work with her work friends. You see her in her flat in Manchester with her fabulous gay neighbors and that life. And then you see her at home and the different identities um, but yeah, and, and how actually, but she's all of them. Mm. And in the workspace, they only see the very surface. Yeah, one yeah, version. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's one point early on in the, in the novel where babies, wish, she says that as a child, she was wishing away her Indianness. Oh, yeah. Which really, really hit hard reading that. So yeah, I just wanted to, to like unpack that a bit as well for you, like personally, that kind yeah. of conflict and tension of identity, but also was there any reconciliation? Yeah, massively. You don't even notice you're doing it as a child. It's only when you become an adult and you look back at your childhood that you start to think about yeah. why you behaved a certain way. And actually, really, it's only in the last sort of few years. I guess this book is a culmination of I suppose if any of you have followed my journey, which I've done very publicly with filming my Who Do You Think You Are and having recently released the memoir, it's a, it's a culmination of all those things. And, um, and filming that Who Do You Think You Are really did fundamentally change something about me. Because when you connect to your ancestry and understand your history, it, I, I, can only, I can't actually really explain it in words other than I felt it. And I think if you saw it, you would have seen the moment when I felt it. And it's when, I'm going to go off on many tangents, by the way. I'm just going to put that out there. It's when I interviewed a, a, a Sikh gentleman in the temple in Amritsar. And I sort of was on my journey. And at that moment, he told me the, 
Okay, this is going to get quite dark as well, but you're with me, aren't you? So um, he told me the story. I, I didn't know what I was there to ask him. They do that on Who Do You Think You Are. They don't tell you what you're about to discover. You really do discover it as you are, you know, being filmed. And I was there to find out what happened to his family, and he told me the most horrifying story about wit witnessing his father and his uncles taking the decision to kill the women of the family rather than them. Sorry, it's going to make me cry every time I think about it. And, uh, and in that moment, I just recognized that, wow, okay, this was only two generations ago, and these are my people. These are the, this is me. And so that then led me... Where, would, where did we begin with this? Um, no, but yes. like you said, right, with, with who do you think you are yeah. and the partition program yes. that you did, it was so heartbreaking and yeah. so brilliant as well, obviously, to see this. These stories come come to us that, that it's like we're carrying this yeah. kind of generational trauma, but we're not fully aware of the story, which is what you were experienced and baby Precisely. also in the novel. And it just felt like in that moment, all the things that I really didn't even, I knew I was feeling a lot, but didn't understand what it was, it kind of solidified. And that's where, and baby is going through the same thing. So she has something inside her that uh, she can't quite pinpoint, which comes from our grandmothers, our mothers, very importantly, our fathers and our grandfathers. I don't think we talk enough about the impacts of what, what happens to men. And, and, uh, and obviously, I'm talking about the, the Punjabi community here because that's my experience. But, you know, so many communities, particularly migrant communities, the Irish community, I know there's many parallels um, yeah. between that, you know, traveling to another land, mm -hmm. taking the trauma with you, never talking about it. And then I guess it takes the generation who has the resources to know what to do to then try and explore it. And, and, and those stories are often, like, they're not, they're not spoken about, they're not heard, yeah. because they, there's just too much pain and too much trauma, like hearing our grandparents, our parents talking about that. And, you, and I wanted to address the, the idea of anger. Uh, in the book, the grandfather, even though he's not there, and I'm on a come on to the fact that the men aren't actually there in the book, but they're also very present. But with the grandfather, he was described as angry, and you also mentioned your own grandfather was, was angry because, but it's like we don't understand why sometimes people in our family are really angry. I mean, I've got people in my family who are really angry, like a bit tyrannical sometimes, but it's because there's trauma there. Yeah, and I just thought Punjabi's like a good rook, you know. <laughs> we just like a good shout. And uh, sometimes you don't, I'm just like, is that an argument or are we just having a conversation? Oh, it's just a conversation. <laughs> uh, we just speak very loud. But yeah, you know, he, um, yeah, I mean, coming to Bradford in 1954 um, on his own at first, having to figure out life in a foreign country, not speaking the language, um, how hard that must have been, how, uh, I'm not really sure how I feel about the word emasculating because there's no female equivalent, mm. but... Um, you know, having to start again at the bottom yeah. of the run uh, of the ladder and then uh, and where you find your solace. You know, my grandfather found it in the pub with his mates and uh, whiskey. whiskey, yeah. And then they, they come home and they take it out on their wives, right? And the kids. And so there it begins. But well, it doesn't. It began before they left, mm. uh, wherever they left. Um, and, and my grandfather is, was from a, a rural community, so it's not like he was from an educated family. Mm. Um, and so, yes, so mm. Baby's grandfather, he's not, he's not actually based on my paternal grandfather, who I'm talking about. He's based on my maternal grandfather, loosely based. 
who was actually in India in the British Indian Army mm-hmm. and uh, didn't ever leave India and was actually very educated mm. um, and amazingly wrote a memoir which I discovered um, so but again moved I sort of m- amalgamated the two yeah. so he was in the army but then you see him have a different life when he moved to the UK and it's not having processed what happened to him before that makes him angry yeah yeah and it's interesting that do you think that your book is like an outlet for that anger like does it channel your anger because this is something that they didn't really uh, maybe his memoir did I don't know but do you feel that this book like channels some of the anger that you had around that or trauma well it's interesting because I've got two very different grandfathers one of them was angry the other one wasn't so I don't know if everyone has to be angry I, I don't know I'm still you know I don't know yeah yeah but from for me is the book and a chat mm. yeah 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 I mean I sit there <laughs> and another thing um I don't know it's definitely a process channeling a lot yeah um but anger is something that I'm very intrigued by mm. and quite interested in fasc- fascinated to explore particularly when you're told that women shouldn't be angry like you know but we've got a lot to be angry about but it's okay. Mm. There's a lot mm. to love as well. Yeah. But it's okay to feel Absolutely. a little bit of rage. <laughs> Sometimes. <gasps> so, you know, you, you've done your memoir and now you've done this, 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 which feels very much like the follow-up novel that was meant to be. It is funny memoir. as well, by the way, hopefully. It is really funny. I'm going to come on to the funny bits. But, like, the, how was that transition between memoir and, uh, and fiction for you? You know, and how much was it your voice and how much was it Baby's voice? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't believe that I've been given the opportunity to write a novel. I mean, it is amazing. It's one of those things that I've had in my mind since I was really little. Mm. So to actually have written one is insane. I mean, it's really different, very different process. It was a very different uh, way of writing, very different uh, time of my life as well because I wrote the memoir in lockdown. Um, but I loved it. I loved it. I love the opportunity to just make up a story, yeah. you know, explore somebody else and different characters. I particularly enjoyed um, thinking about, so basically Baby uh, discovers letters uh, that are written to her grandfather from who she thinks is her grandmother but discovers they're not from her grandmother. And I, I'll reveal that they're actually from uh, a woman who her grandfather was married to before he married her grandmother. And so they're written from this woman, his first wife. Her name is Naseeb. It's a beautiful name. It means fate. And I really enjoyed inhabiting that world. I really enjoyed traveling back to 1940s Punjab and uh, trying to think about the lives of, I guess, my grandmother's generation in India. And, and well, what was India and Pakistan in, you know, pre-partition India. I think Naseeb is such an interesting character. Like, you hear her voice through the letters, and what she symbolizes in the book is just so interesting. Like, it is that kind of connection, but also it's about what women went through as well. And I really love how you pick this out in, the, in your novel in different ways. Yeah, what they went through, their choices. I'm really intrigued by choice or lack of I'm very, very, very acutely aware that I am the first woman in... I mean, I hope there was a rebel somewhere in the line, but who has choice? Who has choice? Yeah. 
about her life. And so I'm actively using it to make hopefully the right choices. I don't know if there's ever such a thing, but they had no choice. So they, you know, Naseeb has, actually she has, she has a, a love marriage, but it's not. She just sees the man that she's going to marry. Yeah, you know what, do you know what love marriage and an arranged marriage, the difference between love marriage and arranged marriage? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, you yeah. have to sort of explain. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. yeah. It's the so, yeah, love marriage is when you just, obviously, you fall in love, you know, that kind of almost forbidden way <laughs> in some of the Asian communities. But arranged marriage is when you're introduced to somebody, families well, are both on board. Yeah, but in 1940s India, uh, you'd, you'd literally sit, sit down in front of the holy book as a Sikh, and that, that's the dude you're marrying. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't even you see... meet them on the wedding day. You meet them on the wedding yeah. day, and you yeah. wouldn't have even seen their face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My parents oh, well. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to get? <laughs> and, uh, and then that's it. That's you for life. And as a woman, you are told that you get on with it. Yeah. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you shame your family by not getting on with it. And so that is what I'm talking about, that lack of choice. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so Naseeb has all these dreams about her life and what, what, she, what she's hoping for and... Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, it's just the world away it's from... It was brilliant. I love yeah. that. So let's look at the other women as well. Um, <laughs> I really loved the entire... You let us enter this whole kind of Punjabi family scene in the book. And it's just, there's like, it's chaotic. There's like food everywhere. And the aunties, the, what you call the Illuminati yes. <laughs> network, which you mentioned in the memoirs of it, is so funny like how you kind of, I was like, spot on. So there are aunties who will come to you and uh, try to, well, ask you, why aren't you married yet? Yeah, basically <laughs> the, the anti-pincer move and there's no, ex no escaping. Uh, so baby is 36 and unmarried. And so therefore her life is of extreme interest to the Illuminati and uh, she can't dodge them. And she, yeah, she's cornered. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I mean they're caricatures. I really enjoyed writing them. <laughs> I recognise them. Yeah, but you recognise them. They're all there. They're all there. Even when they're they're well-meaning, it's still uh, hilarious. Um, so I, I yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed writing them. Yeah. And and what I also really like in that entire scene with the what well, it was baby's birthday, and then everyone's there in the house. There's a conversation between baby and her best friend. Yes. Who did the whole like got married, had children, but they're having this conversation where they're both at a crossroads and they're just talking about how difficult it is to be a woman. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a baby's best friend is called Pinky. <laughs> Listen, these are actual, these are real names. if you are Punjab, you have definitely got a baby auntie, you've definitely got a Pinky auntie. Um, so Baby and Pinky are best mates. Pinky gets married, got married straight after uni, met the dream Indian son-in-law, and now has three children. And uh, I don't want to give the book away, because obviously you're going to read it. Uh, yeah. But they have yeah. this conversation together. Baby's a bit drunk. She likes a drink. I don't know where I got that idea from. Um, uh, and yeah, it's about exploring choice again. And they are at a crossroads, because Baby is unsure what she's done with her life, um, and whether her choices of uh, all that's, you know, that kind of independent lifestyle is all that it's cracked yeah. up to be. Mm. And Pinky is considering what she's done with her life and maybe she wants a bit of what Baby's done and that, that conversation that 
very rarely happens amongst women because, and I'm not just talking about Indian women, I'm talking about all women, which is we go through life and at some point you wonder, have I done this because I wanted to or have I done it because it's expected of me? Mm. Did I just get married and have children because that's what everyone else was doing or is it truly what I wanted? And so she is, Pinky is wondering whether this is what she wanted whilst breastfeeding her baby, who she loves but also would quite like to just go off and have a bit of a dance with baby. But, you know, that's, that's, that's all our lives. Yeah, yeah. It's a Honestly, it's a struggle. And it's you as, you know, in this very white world, in the broadcasting world, it's like, it feels like, is it a constant struggle just existing as a, an Asian, well, British Asian, uh, Punjabi, whatever, Sikh, you know, whatever it is, like, is it, is it a constant kind of battle or is it, is it great having that kind of outsider perspective as well? Um, so at the beginning of my career, I didn't think about it because I just kept my head down and thought, I'm just here to work. work. And actually, my ethnicity is not, a, is not what I'm about. You know, it's just an aspect of me. And then you kind of wake up and think, oh, no, everyone sees my ethnicity first. So have a reality check, Anita. And then you probably, truth be told, you probably have a bit of a dip and think, right, okay, I need to just sh j shout twice as hard and jump up and down. Mm. But I've been doing that anyway. And, and now I'm at a phase, I'm actually giving you the, the truth here, which is there's no point in not, uh, that's the other thing I've come to realize at my age, it's no point in saying anything other than that's truthful and meaningful. And now actually I feel the complete opposite. I feel really empowered by my identity and I feel it's really important to talk about mm. all of me because it's not just for me, it feels very empowering within myself, but I sort of feel like I've got a duty to the next generation mm. so that they can see that you don't have to apologize for who you are mm, yeah. and that actually you can present yourself as the real you. You don't have to do what I did for the first however many years, which is switch off half of you yeah. to make other people feel comfortable. Yeah. I don't think we should do that yeah. anymore. And, and you're a founding uh, patron of South Asian Heritage Month as yeah. well. Is this, is this one of the reasons why you kind of founded that? You like? Yeah, I think that came off the back of um, um, the partition program, recognizing that so, so little is known about British history, colonial British history. We only know a certain bit of it. Mm. And that bit doesn't really fit in with the stories I'm told when I, when, well, when I go to India, not that I've been told by my family because we don't talk about it. So I think that's about leaning into understanding what it means to be British and South Asian and telling stories, telling stories, and, and who is telling the stories importantly and who has ownership of those stories and what perspective you're looking at them from. Um, and so initially it was about trying to get um, partition put on the curriculum, opening up the curriculum, talking about uh, you know a bit a wider range of British history, but then sort of South Asian Heritage Month came yeah, out of that, which is, which, which, which feels great because it means that everybody can be yeah. part of it. Yeah. So if you're at a school, teachers can get involved. His, you know, every, you know every yeah. city can get involved, and people can take it and run with it and yeah. do whatever they want. Yeah. Check out, it's been around for a few years, or yeah, five years, yeah. I think now. It's the third year yeah. actually this year, so oh, it's still so it's in its yeah. Oh, because of the pandemic, yeah. Um, also, just you going in the baby in the book, going to India and like feeling India through the perspective of 
an Asian woman was really refreshing because often you see it through the eyes of white people who go yeah. there. So, but yeah. she's British. Yeah, and yeah, this yeah. is the other thing, the other side of what's really important to my identity and what I'm trying to... Yeah, of course, I'll talk about my ethnicity and what it means to be brown in Britain, but this is also... I am also completely of this land. Yeah. You know, I am... I, ca I think in England... I think... I think I've got a Yorkshire sense of humour. <laughs> and, you know, and that... And it's really kind of making people... That you know, see that, and so when I presented the coronation, was amazingly asked to be part of the coronation presenting lineup. I naturally wanted to wear a sari with Doc Martens because what <laughs> could be more British than a sari with Doc Martens? And you know, so I think that is what I'm what I'm really about. It's about marrying the two together. So yeah, when she goes to India, and often people will say to me, "Oh, what's it like going home?" I'm like. What Bradford, like, you know. Yeah. India is amazing, and I have been going to India a lot more than Baby has. Baby's only going for her second time. I've been going since I was a kid, and I absolutely love it. And yes, I'm a massive Indophile, and every cliche is true, and it's amazing, and you'll have seen all the programs, and, and some of you have probably been. Um, but I am still not of that land, and I stick out like a sore thumb. Because caught in between sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, up felt like that. Yeah, I mean, I love it, but it's also quite nice. It's quite nice being from there and kind of not people not knowing that you're, but then also not feeling different. It's yeah, yeah, nice yeah. to be able to you just move between move different between worlds. worlds. Yeah, really beautifully. But baby yeah. has her mind blown because not yeah. only does she land in India, she lands in modern day India and modern day Delhi, and often we see very romantic, um, idealized versions of, you know, people traveling on trains, historians across beautiful, idyllic, rural landscapes and going into villages. And yes, all of that in India ex exists, but also there's modern cosmopolitan mm. India. Party scene. Party scene, <laughs> she goes clubbing, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, yeah, and that context of seeing yourself being somewhere where everyone looks like you. Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to now look at the family dynamic um, in your book. So it's really interesting the mother daughter relationship and also the grandmother, you know, really lovely three generations of, of women and how they interact, and also the fact that the, the grandfather's not there, the father's not there. They're absent, yet they still impact their lives. So I killed the men off, didn't I? <laughs> you killed I did that. <laughs> but, you know, it's a reality, actually, for so many people. But, like, you know, it was just... I, I like the idea of, like, there's a bit of tension between the mother and daughter, but also there's that love and that recognition. And, you know, it's really interesting that there's nuance there and just conve conveying that. Yeah, I often think about the women, my grandmother's generation coming here and what they had to go through and really strong. They're probably the most overlooked demographic in the country, really, you know, that generation of yeah. Asian women. Mm. Um, I just don't think anyone ever thinks about them, not even their own families, mm. you know, as having anything other than the ability to provide food mm. and comfort when you need it. Yeah, Did they right. Do they have feelings? Did they have desires? Did they have a life? You know, I don't... Yeah. You never sort of think about your grandmothers like that. And uh, and then the yeah the she has a very um, tense relationship with her mother, and that's I and I th wonder about that m my mother's generation and I get I guess again again they were essentially brought up they might as well have been brought up in the Victorian era, and then they give birth to very modern young women mm. who want to forge a life and have choice and don't want to do what they did. 
and it's kind of getting your head around the fact that your daughter doesn't want to do what you did and you're trying to make her do it. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and the daughter trying to understand why her mother would wait, make her want to do something she clearly isn't particularly happy about doing herself. So it's that kind of upholding of the patriarchy and the questioning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which you really address so well as well in the book. Cause, but with, with the absence of, of the father and, and the grandfather, how does loss and like the absence of somebody like really impact those 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 relationships mm, yeah what happens when somebody one yeah. when, when they're removed so there's more pressure on like you know for example my, my father passed away a long time ago and i was very close to him and then that whole that removal of him now from that dynamic with my relationship with my parents became my relationship with my mother mm. so yeah and i really appreciated how you you wrote about that yeah because it puts more pressure on it doesn't mm. it and that becomes more intense and also grief how do we deal with grief um, within a culture that is so resilient and I don't know and families that don't share and don't talk about anything where is the space to even allow yourself to I don't know even if I guess if you don't even allow yourself to grieve then how do you open yourself up to other people so it's kind of yeah it's dealing with all of that really deep and um, and also the mother <laughs> it's also the funny bit with she's just sending these very inappropriate emojis to her daughter yeah 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 Ma yeah asian uh, emojis uh baby's mum has only just figured out what an emoji is still can't do facetime either there's a lot of holding under the chin <laughs> of facetime a lot of that um <laughs> Yeah, there's and then a like sending that um, the aubergine and like oh, yeah. <laughs> baby like that does not mean brinjal pickle. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was hilarious. Yes, aubergine means does not mean, <laughs> does not mean pickle not in that context. Mom. No, but but I love that interplay as well. So there's a lot of humour in it. There's so much humour, but there's also the serious issues that you address, and you know, and the layers of that, and kind of like wrapping it up in something that's really accessible and digestible but yet there are some very difficult topics in there too thanks Ramona <laughs> what a relief um that uh, the humor is really important though I hope there's bits of it that's funny because like yeah I'm dealing with some heavy issues like it's like all we're talking about um but um I think you've got to deal with these things with the lightness of touch because that's life isn't it that's the human experience and also that is the Yorkshire experience um that's why I always say, I said this to someone the other day, and it took, they were a little bit uh, affronted. I said, northern women are the funniest in the land, bar none. They were like, that's not that, to that's not. I was like, it's totally true, which is why Emmerdale and Coronet, this, this is genuinely the <laughs> level of my intellectual debates. That's why Corrie <laughs> and Emmerdale are so funny, because they're so dark, and it's working class humour, right? Because yeah. when you just have to get on with it, you kind of make things funny. And, um, and that's what I said about in my memoir about my grandmother coming to Bradford. I said that it was the best place for this working class in Asian community to end up because they fit in, because the women work, the men work hard, the women work harder, and you bring your kids up as best you can. And there is some dark humor in there somewhere yeah. that you find. <laughs> no, well, I loved it and also I've really appreciated through Naseeb mm. um, and through the letters now you're talking about a very complex and very difficult period yes. of, uh, but through these letters which have this like 
a light touch, but but you know, talking about the serious stuff. But you're also talking about the 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 beautiful like humanity, the shared humanity. And there's there's a, as a Muslim woman mentioned, and the friendship yes. between Naseeb and the Muslim woman yeah. was really beautifully told. Thank you. Yeah. Well, they're love letters. They're love letters. She is writing to her beloved husband, who is away in the army, and she is married and in his village, and she befriends. Anjuman, who is a Muslim woman, because this is pre-partition India, and Muslim Sikhs, uh, Hindus, Christians, everybody lived together, and what united you was your Punjabiness, not your religion. The religion was secondary. You're culturally identical. Your food, your language, your wedding rituals, everything is identical. And so her best friend is Anjuman and... I don't know how much I should tell you. I don't feel like I don't think don't, I could don't give say too much. I don't think honestly I could give it's such a beautiful story. Please buy the I book. I can't. <laughs> I can't give you them much more about their story because it's so crucial to the whole book. Um, but essentially, just the, yeah. just the fact that you know you're kind of highlighting that this is what it was like. You know, pre-partition, nobody saw like those different religions. Things are more tense now, obviously, but there is still that there is still that coexistence, that plurality. That well, I mean, we're all hoping that that, we'll, that India will hold on to. Yeah. Um, so I just I just liked how you conveyed that through the letters and also the love and the romance in it. Mm. It's just really tender. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And and the fact that the baby has a little bit of a romance. We'll get as her well, too. As like, yeah. I mean, we'd all love to. I meet wasn't going like to. I wasn't going to when I first. I was like, and I was like, no, come on, Anita. She's allowed a bit of love in her life. Give her a bit of love. Yeah, she's allowed, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so she does have a romance. She meets a hot a hottie called Sid. She goes on a road trip. Yeah. He's it's short for, he, si short for really Siddharth. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's like, oh, I wish I, when I go to India that happens, but never happens. I mean, happens. yeah, never happens. <gasps> yeah, never. There's never any... But he's lovely. Yeah. yeah. And he opens up um, India and he kind of like uh, challenge her, challenges her as well. He does he? challenge her. And also, there was a, there was a reason why she goes... To, funny because my mate was like oh my god she meets a hottie in India what <laughs> and I was like yeah and it was really important that I did that because actually I think Indian men get quite a hard time you know I don't think there are enough hot Indian Asian men in uh, out there in stories in literature so I wanted to create this this dashing intelligent handsome fun um yeah interesting guy who yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, mean, ah. I, I definitely enjoyed that character everyone's gonna enjoy <laughs> i think everyone's gonna enjoy sid <laughs> right I do you like the bit where he lifts his arms and she sees his abs oh, oh yeah <laughs> there was a lot, a lot going on a lot of food bit. in it as well there's a lot of food yes there is yeah 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 well it, it can't be an asian novel without food. no without food yeah it might make you hungry when you read it well, there's a sense of nostalgia as well around the food, as well as always is with the, uh, your mum's yeah. food. And yeah, absolutely. You know, that smell, waking up on a Saturday morning to the smell of cooking. And I always thought, why is my mum cooking on a Saturday morning? Why can't she just do it when everyone else is mums? That back to the identity thing about um, wishing away your ethnicity. Why couldn't she just make dinner like before dinner? And then she goes to India and she goes to Punjab and she discovers all these little things about India that you wouldn't know until you go to Punjab. Things like, well, the electricity still cuts out, mm. which is magical. I mean, it's annoying as hell, 
But also, when you're traveling from Britain, it is just the sort of sweet joy of being in a Punjabi village, and then you have to get... And I remember going to my mum's sister's wedding in the 80s and still having kerosene lamps. And I'm so blessed that I experienced that India that doesn't exist anymore because now everyone has generators. And then you travel back to 1940s Punjab and you see that there, are, there is no electricity and that they have to cook in daylight hours. So of course my mum and my granny wake up first thing in the morning and prepare all the food because that's what Indian women did. They woke up in the morning and prepared during daylight hours. Now I get it. Then you get it. That's why they cook. And then also it's organised, isn't it? It's done. And also curry tastes better a few hours later. (laughs) And they also cook for like a battalion, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) It's never in like just for that day or for just like one person. It's about 50 people are going to come in. And I'm the same. I'm the same. Are you? And yeah, yeah, and I'm really pleased that I... And it's amazing because those recipes are... I don't have recipes. They're just given to us, aren't they? And I really, really treasure that. That is a gift. That because I don't know really what those conversations were around the fire in 1942, mm. but I know the food they were eating because mm. I still eat. I can still taste it. Mm. Oh yeah. Gosh, yeah. That's that's the conjuring the past, isn't nostalgia. it? Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm. So true. Thank you so much, Anita. That's been this has been incredible. Oh, I'm really gonna I'm it. gonna open it up. I've I've enjoyed it more. Um, I'm gonna open it up to the audience now for for Q and A, and I believe there's a roaming mic going around. So please raise your hand, and she'll come straight over. Oh, one there, one there. Start with the lady here, and then we'll come to the gentleman afterwards. Hi. Um, so I'm really interested in how you've talked about anger and how you've received this anger that's come down the generations and then when you found out about all the hidden history that you also feel the anger but you've been really diplomatic talking about the anger without talking about the to whom that is directed and whether or not that can be resolved are you talking about part uh, colonialism yes obviously right. yeah. um actually i don't think that is th- I, um i mean that that there is anger about that. I think this is a deeper anger. It's about uh, a female anger. It's um, about a powerlessness, and it's a voicelessness. And I think the anger. I think that the anger was always always there, but I allowed it to connect with me when that happened. But um, am I angry about um, partition? Yeah, I mean. Actually, when I made my Who Do You Think You Are, that wasn't the main bit of my anger. The main bit of my anger is what was done to women during that time. That is the primary rage that I feel. But absolutely, I mean, I mean, it's madness, isn't it, that a line was drawn in six weeks by a chap, a lawyer from Britain who had never set foot in India, never done any form. He was a lawyer, never done anything in geography or in cartography and was given six weeks to draw a line. I mean, it's madness. It's absolute madness. And that is a conversation that this we as a nation need to have, I think. And I don't know why we're afraid to have it. I just don't understand why we can't just have the humility to say, yes, we did this. And I think we will only grow in a positive way if we had that conversation. Only recently, really, have we been really seriously talking about it, even in that public space. And I think that partition was, and, and who do you think you are, was just so powerful because it opened up conversations, you know, especially your programme. You said people were talking about, or talking to their grandparents for the first time about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you for that question. And then there was a gentleman in the blue shirt, I think. 
Thank you both very much for a really enjoyable and interesting conversation. I'm now really intrigued and looking forward to going on a journey with Baby. Yes. Which, as, as a white British male in his 50s, I think it's going to be quite a voyage of discovery, which I'm really looking forward to. What's your next part of your next voyage of discovery? And is Baby going with you? Oh, I hope so. Um, voyage of discovery, yeah. Yes. It is a year of great change. I'm being cryptic. Uh, so I am about, I'm, I'm uh, a 45 year old woman. And I think most women will, who have at that age, will, I, I just feel very different. I feel like- I'm 45. Yeah, <laughs> it just feels really significant. And all I can say is that there is a huge step and voyage of discovery that I, I am really excited about taking. I don't think I've ever felt more excited about the next phase of my life. But another novel would be good. Yeah, yeah, 45-year-old baby. Let's meet her at 45. But yeah, I think for women, I think getting into your mid-40s is absolutely a moment of, right, what happens next? Do I carry on living the way? And, it, and it's like, right, absolutely. I don't know, feel more confident and want to make decisive choices about making the most of my time. Thank you. And the, oh, there's three here, in Having fact. fun. I've just got back from Glastonbury as well. Going to Glastonbury yeah. in the 40s is <laughs> great. Um, Anita, um, I do have a question, but before that, I'd just like to say we have three things in common. The first is um, you're an honorary member of Bingley Harriers Athletic Club. Yes, I am, yeah. And, uh, and so am I, because I was president for a while. Um, we're also both extremely passionate about Bradford. Correct. And, and I want to thank you for not purporting to say to people when you're in London that you're from somewhere near Leeds. Yep. Because it, <laughs> it, it, it drives me mental. So uh, I come from a mile up the road. I'm pr proud to say I was born in Lidget Green and lived there for the first 24 years of my life. I'm now 62. I do have a question for you, and it is a little bit cheeky. Go on. Uh, so, we are going to share space on bookshelves this year, because I've, I've written a book, um, and you're actually mentioned in it, uh, because I've got a whole half chapter about Bradford. Um, my book is called Don't Settle for Gold. Believe it or not, I'm called Stephen Fry. <laughs> You're, you're going to be a bestseller. Well, uh, uh, so far, it is on Waterstone's website, but he's down as the author. But that's another story <laughs> that I have to deal with. So my question to you is, can I get you to read it, please? <laughs> I, will, I will read your book, Stephen. Thank you. I would love to read it. I would love to read it. And yet, it, it winds me up when people say they're from somewhere near Leeds. Just say it. Also, how do you know, like I say, it's missionary work and I'm really, really proud of this city. And if we, if you can't be proud of it, then, you know, yeah, you've got to, got to stand up for who you are. I'd love to read it. Is that a copy? Oh, that's a flyer. Come on then. Yeah, don't settle for gold, Stephen Fry. <laughs> there we go. Let's, let's all read it. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. Hi, I'm just really interested in terms of what you've been speaking about in terms of the history of how incredibly horrendous the English were in India, as well as lots of other places they colonialized. And I'm a big fan of Amir Khan, not the boxer, the film 
guy. And I came to this atrocity through one of his films, uh, Mangal Pandi, I think it's called, about the rising, yeah. about the uprising, yeah. when the English wanted the, the um, sepoys to use a specific bullet, and then there was an uprising because they wouldn't use it, it, was, it was because pretty, it had pig's yeah. fat. And the film is just an amazing portrayal of the atrocities that happened during that time. And I agree with you very much that I think we should shine a light on that period in history where England should just be ashamed of how they treated people, basically. And I just wondered if the repercussions, you spoke about your grandfather being in the army, if anything from that um, massacre in Delhi had affected or his memory or, or anything. He might not have been involved in it, but they, he must have had some recollection of that time. And also the brilliant William Dalrymple has written lots of fantastic books about the English when they first went to India, uh, the white moguls yep. and how when men went to India, they would dress like um, the, the moguls, if you like, they would emulate the dress and then slowly the English killed off the Mughal empires yeah. and robbed them, the East writer. India Company oh, robbed yeah. the so, Indians. So, um, so what's, what's your question? It, it's just if, it's, if the um, atrocities... In, my grandfather. Yes, if, yes. If, he would, so, if he would have had some recollection or no. some forebears would have... So my yeah. grandma, sadly I didn't meet my maternal grandfather. He died before, six months before my mum got married. Um, so I didn't get to meet him. So I, I never, I, but I read this incredible memoir that he left behind. Um, you're right, there's so much, so much, and it's 300 years of history, you know, from when the East India Company first set foot. And actually, if anybody is, I'm gonna do some cross-promotion. Um, and listen, if you haven't already, listen to a brilliant podcast by William Dalrymple and Anita Anand called Empire. I'm sure lots of you in this room have already it's know about it. Amazing. If you are interested in uh, British Empire, then that is, the podcast it is absolutely brilliant and there are so many stories like the one that you talk about Mangal Pandey and also I, in the book I talk about Jalliam Alabag which happened in 1919 um, where General Dyer opened fire on um, you know nearly 2,000 Sikh families who were gathering in Amritsar and um, so much so much happened and these stories do need to be spoken about but this idea that it was I was film I should tell you the story. Oh well, okay. I won't name names. But anyway, I was filming Countryfile. It's only us, no one else say it. Say it. I was filming Countryfile and I was talking to somebody on someone's land and having a really lovely conversation with the matriarch of this family. And she'd grown up in Zimbabwe. And I said, and I've done a bit of backpacking around East Africa and um and I said, you know, beautiful country. I'd seen the Vic Victoria Falls, making small talk. And I said, um, but of course, everything's changing. And there's no, now lots of, the, lots of Chinese companies are building roads. And she said, yes, of, yes, of course. But the Chinese are not as benevolent as the British. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and, I just, and then you just leave it there. Because um, <laughs> uh, you don't know where wow. to go from there. Yeah. But that's the atti attitude. And uh, yeah, you're right. We, need to, we just need to have a, and I think conversations are starting. Um, I don't know, I don't have the answers, but they, it needs a big shake-up. Lots of people are talking about it. There's people, brilliant people like Satnam Sangera and far cleverer people than me out there having bigger conversations. I'm just kind of doing my little bit. 
telling my my little story we need, and seeing we, what we happens. We're running out of time. I know, I'm but no, we've got, no, we've got, got two time. more questions. Oh, no, we've got four, sorry. Um, oh, gosh. So we'll go to... Who had their hand up first? I have no idea. We'll come to... Hi, good afternoon. Um, lovely to see you. Um, thank you for being here. Um, I am um, a Pakistani. I was born in Karachi. Uh, sometimes I have conversations with my uh, young children. I've got two boys. My 12-year-old recently said, uh, but mama, you are Pakistani. I'm not Pakistani. I was, born, I was born here. I'm English. I said, but you're not English, are you? And it was a big, you know, it was a question mark and led to a conversation, you know, but we are still discovering it. So you said you'd like to write another novel. Um, would you consider uh, children's literature, which is something that I'm always pondering about. Um, I would encourage you to do that. And how, how, my question is, how do you think we can engage the next generation uh, towards their cultural heritage? Yeah, it's a big question, isn't it? Because, um, uh, and the, the, the what comes up, and it is a completely different generation because it's being brought up by you know our generation, and uh, I don't have children, so I, I mean, and I think they have a completely different perspective because he's being brought up by you, and not you know I'm sure you're much more open and understanding. But that question of identity, I don't know if I could claim to be. It's weird because I, I've been saying I'm of this land and I'm British, but I can I cannot bring myself to say I'm English. I just can't. And that's not on me, that's because that's how I've been made to feel. Mm. That no, it's very true. Yes, yes, that's true, when you go traveling. Um, so it is a constant, and actually I've come to the, of the, I'm of the opinion it sort of doesn't matter. And actually there is an amazing international uh, freedom when you look like we do and be able to travel and people just assuming you are of their land So when I've been abroad to film in various countries if I'm in the Middle East or in you know anywhere Spanish people just presume you're from there and it's great. It's, like, it's very nice, but but yes that kind of culture like retaining bits of your culture is um, I don't know language food mm. I think we have time for one more question, but I mean, there's so many hands up. I'm going to leave it to you so nobody hates me. <laughs> Hello. Um, I just also wanted to start by saying thank you for the book, um, The Right Sort of Girl. It was a big uh, voice and representation, so I really appreciated that. Um, my question is about, you mentioned about being sort of the first in your generation to have choice as, an, as a British Asian woman. How then do you manage the choice with the disappointment from family. Ah, I figured that out. You don't give a... <laughs> Seriously, that's how I managed it. You, you know, again, 45, uh, you wake up and you realize, oh, they were just telling me what to do based on their experience of life, but my experience of life is vast and so far beyond what they ever experienced. And that's all right for them, but what's all right for me is completely different. Yeah. And either they get it or they don't. And ultimately, you either bend to their will and never do what you want to do, or you just make a choice and go, I'm just going to do me now. So that's my message, preaching to the sisters. Yeah. And the brothers. And the brothers. <laughs> <laughs> to everyone. Thank you so much, Anita. It's been such a rich and brilliant conversation. So oh, can you please give really another round of applause to Thank you, to everybody. Anita. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.